6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 5 through 8. If they return to thee with all their heart, that's the tough part. With all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have carried them captives, and pray toward their land which thou gavest unto their fathers, and toward the city which thou hast chosen, and toward the house which I have built for thy name, then hear thou from heavens, even from thy dwelling place, their prayer and their supplications, and maintain their cause, and forgive thy people which have sinned against thee. Now, my God, let I beseech thee, thine eyes be open, let thine ears be attent to the prayer that is made in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O Lord God, unto thy resting place, thou and the ark of thy strength. Let thy priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let thy saints rejoice in goodness. O Lord God, turn not away the face of thine anointed. Remember the mercies of David, thy servant. Whew. Okay. So that was Solomon's prayer to God. We're going to have God's going to appear to Solomon a second time and see what happens here. Now, when Solomon had made an end of praying, in chapter 7, verse 1, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Simple sentence, breathtaking. We're talking thousands of people watching this, and to watch God reach down and consume the burnt offering. Wow. And it wasn't just one altar. There were thousands being offered. So this is a big deal. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they panicked completely. Well, I wouldn't be surprised. No. They bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and, and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good. For his mercy endureth forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord, and King Solomon offered a sacrifice. Get this, 22,000 oxen. That'll excite the animal rights people, huh? <laughs> and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. They were serious. Whatever else, they were serious. They took it seriously. Now the priests waited on their offices, the Levites also with instruments of music of the Lord, which David the king had made to praise the Lord, because his mercy endureth forever. When David praised by their ministry, and the priests sounded trumpets before them, and all Israel stood. Moreover, Solomon hallowed the middle of the court, which was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the peace offerings, because the brazen altar which Solomon had made was not able to receive the burnt offerings and the meat offerings and the fat. Far more than he could do just on that one thing, of course. Also at the same time, uh, Solomon kept the feast of seven days and all Israel with him, a very great congregation, from entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt. 
That's like the whole country, if you will. And uh, Hamath is at the northern boundary of the Euphrates River. And the Wadi of Egypt is the Wadi Arish, El Arish, in the, in the minds of most scholars there. And on the eighth day, they made a solemn assembly, for they kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. They knew how to throw a party, huh? And on the three and twentieth day of the seventh month, he sent the people away into their tents, glad and merry in heart for the goodness that the Lord had showed unto David and to Solomon and to Israel his people. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house he prosperously effected. Now we get to a very, very, we're moving towards a very important passage here. So let's catch, catch the tone here. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and I have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the, ho the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among thy people, if, 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 then what? The Lord is talking to Solomon. Let's pay attention. Here's the one verse I want you to carry away from tonight's session. There's many, but this is a key one. Second Chronicles 7.14. Mark it on your Bibles. God speaking to Solomon directly, personally. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. If my people, which are called by my name, not just be able to be their people, but called by their name, does that fit any of us? If they will do four things, I'll do three, he says. If they will humble themselves and pray, we know how to do that, both of those, and seek my face. I'm not sure we know how to do that. That's not a head trip thing. That's not an intellectual thing. That's a commitment thing. That's a passion thing. That's the kind of thing you, you aspired to when you're courting your spouse. Seek my, thy face. Ah, here's the rub. And turn from their wicked ways. Then... You do those four things, I'll do three. Then, will I hear from heaven? Apparently not until then, in a corporate sense. And will forgive their sin, praise God, and will heal their land. Now, there's a great big difference of opinion among Bible scholars because the sound scholar will correctly point out that this statement was made by God to Solomon on behalf of the nation Israel. And you can create a solid argument that this applies to them and no other. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. And you can argue, and many scholars do, that this, this verse is widely misapplied. I happen to have a difference of view, but I want you to understand that my view is not necessarily the general view. There are many serious scholars that I, who I respect very highly that would take the view that this applies to Israel only. I have a slightly different view, and I'll cover that when we get to the end. We'll come back and take another look at this in a broader sense. In the meantime, let's us move on now, for now, so I'll make sure I cover the ground we need to cover here. 
And now mine eyes shall now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attend to the prayer that is made in this place for now I have chosen and sanctified this house and my name may be there forever and mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually and as for thee if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked and do according to all that I have commanded thee and shall observe my statutes and my judgments then will I establish thy, the, the throne of thy kingdom according as I have covenanted with David thy father saying there shall not fail thee a man to be a ruler in Israel unfortunately Solomon didn't do that he failed to keep his things, and he, he ended up um, being messed up before it's all over. But if ye turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land which I have given them, and this house which I have sanctified for my name will I cast out of my sight and make it a proverb and a byword among the nations. And indeed it is. It's interesting that idol worship doesn't have to include rejection of the living God. All it has to do is create an equal alternative. The Romans didn't care who you worshipped as long as you worshipped Caesar. You see, it wasn't a question of not allowing them to worship Christ. That wasn't the point. The point is they were not to, to put Caesar, you know, the Roman idea was Caesar had to be number one. So the idea isn't that you're not worshiping God, it's that you're serving other gods. No, God wants to be, he doesn't want to be number one on a list of ten, he wants to be number one on a list of one. That's the idea. And this house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passes by it, so that he shall say, Why hath the Lord done this thus unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them, therefore hath he brought all this evil upon them. Boy, does that describe the history of the Jews? Chapter 8. We have Solomon's years of conquest. And it came to pass at the end of twenty years, wherein Solomon had built the house of the Lord, his own house, of the cities which Hiram had restored to Solomon. Solomon built them and caused the children to dwell there. He'd given them some cities they didn't work out, so Hiram was displeased, so he, he took them back and uh, restored them. And Solomon went to Hamath Zobah and prevailed against it, and he built Tadmor in the wilderness and all the store cities which he built in Hamath. And there's a bunch of these towns that, that uh, he's, he's acquiring. See, at the time, he, he, he started acquiring these foreign states. He, com he, he commenced with what we would call Syria today, the Aramean city of Hamath Zobah. That's 300 miles north of Jerusalem. I want you to get a feeling for the reach here. This isn't local, this is out there. Then he fortified Tadmor, later known as Palmyra on your maps today. That's a desert oasis uh, and trading center on the main highway from Mesopotamia. It's about 150 miles northeast of Damascus. Not just Damascus, it's 150 miles more. That's what we're talking about here as, as an area. And he built Beth Horon, the upper, and Beth Horon, the nether, fenced cities with walls, gates, and bars, and Balath, the, and all the store cities that Solomon had, and all the chariot cities. One of the chariot cities, best known one, is uh, Megiddo. Megiddo is about 20 layers deep, and it was one of his major chariot cities. He really had commerce going on in the, in the, in the horses and the chariots. And the cities of the horsemen, and all that Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, and in Lebanon, and throughout all the land of his dominion. So Beth Horon is about 10 miles northwest of Jerusalem. It's, that's where Joshua had the sun stand still and all that business. 
that's on the border between Judah and the northern tribes of Israel. Balaf is in the territory of Dan. That's way, way up there. And uh, other unnamed cities probably include Hazor, Megiddo, Gezer, some of those. As for all the people that were left of the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which were not of Israel, but of their children who, who were left after them in the land, whom the children of Israel consumed not, them did Solomon make to pay tribute until this day. So he, can, he drafted, he conscribed the Hittites, and they're ones from the area that we would consider Tur Turkey today. The Amorites, are the hill dwellers in Canaan. The Perizzites, which are also a sub-tribe in Canaan. The Hivites, which are probably the Indo-Aryan, the Hurrians, if you will. The Jebusites, those are the original inhabitants of Jerusalem, if you will. These are people not fully subjugated by Israel in the conquest under Joshua, but they become slaves or menials or, you know, they are, they're, they're pressed into service. Um, the same way that British sailors volunteer to serve in the British Navy. If you know how that worked, yeah, okay. But if the children of Israel did, uh, but of the children of Israel did Solomon make no servants for his work, but they were men of war and chief of his captains and captains of his chariots and horsemen. These were the chief of King Solomon's officers, even 250 that bear rule over the people. Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David unto the house that he had built for her. And he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David the king of Israel, because the places are holy, whereunto the ark of the Lord hath come. So it's interesting, he gave her a nice place, but he didn't want her, that pagan contamination of the holy places. Interesting, the sensitivity there. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings unto the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he hath built before the porch. Uh, even after a certain rate every day, offering according to the commandment of Moses on the Sabbaths and on the new moons and on the solemn feasts three times in a year, even in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of, Rab Feast of Tabernacles. Deuteronomy 16, 16, those are the three feasts of the seven that were compulsory for every able-bodied Jew. It's interesting that the writer to Chronicles makes no mention of Solomon's introducing pagan shrines and worship. That's stressed in 1 Kings 11, first 13 verses. So they're part of the historical record, but they're deliberately just set aside as far as the Chronicles is concerned because he's focusing on the perspective of the priests. So he's, there's a little spin doctoring going here in a sense. And he appointed, according to the order of David his father, the courses of the priests to their service, the Levites to their charges, to praise and minister before the priests as the duty of every day required, and the porters also by their courses at every gate. For so David, the man of God, commanded. So they got everything under guard, if you will. And they departed not from the commandment of the king unto the priests and the Levites concerning any matter or concerning the treasures. Now all the work of Solomon was prepared unto the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord, and until it was finished. So the house of the Lord was perfected. So Solomon's had his problems that are glossed over here, but at the same time, they did stick to the proper procedures, apparently. And then Solomon, then went Solomon to Ezion Geber. Now this is, uh, right, this is a seaport down in the Gulf of Aqaba, if you will. And to Elath, at the seaside in the land of Edom. So we're way, way south down. down this is, uh, at uh, Elath there is where Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and Israel all meet. The, uh, the corners of all three uh, geographies, geographies. And Hiram sent him by the hands of his servants' ships and servants that had knowledge of the sea. And they went with the servants of Solomon to Ophir, and took thence 450 talents of gold, and brought them to King Solomon. Now that's a bunch. Um, Solomon has a trading empire, because he's in partnership with Hiram. 
they had the skills, the Phoenician skills of seamanship. So operating out of Isengeber and Elath, these are seaports on the eastern arm of the Red Sea. Today it's known as the Gulf of Aqaba or the Gulf of Elat. And with Hiram sailors, they sailed to distance points such as the land of Ophir. No one knows where the land of Ophir is. There's a lot of conjectures. But they did on one voyage bring back about 17 tons of gold. Isn't that wild? And uh, if you go to the, British, uh, you go to the uh, uh, Cairo Museum, they'll show you exhibits that seem to indicate there was eras in Egypt's history where silver was valued more than gold. Because gold was more available to them at certain times, and silver was not. So there's inversion. That surprises us because today, of course, just the, and, and for most of history, it was the other way around. Because gold is more rare, and it's, it, it also doesn't tarnish. It's got some properties that lend itself to being a monetary metal. But uh, it's interesting in some of the ancient exhibits, they recognize, for strange reasons, they, they value, for a while, silver even above gold. Some concluding thoughts on this lesson, then. Back there in chapter 5, we saw the cherubim spread forth their wings and over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof, and they drew out the staves of the ark. I want to just emphasize this. Even in the Hebrew symbolism of the mechanics here, you have always, they always point to Jesus Christ. And here, to the extent that the ark points to Jesus Christ, here it implies they've reached a point here where it's done, it's finished, completed. And one of the things we need to really be sensitive to, not because of this passage, but because the whole book of Romans and, and elsewhere, all through the scripture, that Christ, what Christ did, he completed. It's done. It is finished. To tell us die is what he yelled from the cross. It said, it is finished in the script. Another way to translate that same word is paid in full. Christ has paid the whole tab for all of us. We can't add to what he has completed on our behalf. All we can do is recognize it, acknowledge it, and receive it gratefully. Um, Definitely not to deny it. So that's one item. But I want to get back to 714 because I believe that God is announcing a principle here and our God changes not. He says, if my people... How many of you in this audience are God's people? Can I see a show of hands? Praise God. Now I have to admit that some of you, I hope I'm being facetious, uh, are the best undercover Christians that the world's ever seen. The neighbors, the family, never suspect you're sold out to Christ. And I assume that's none of you. If my people which are called by my name. How many of you are called by God's name? Praise God. That's what it's all about. I believe that's what the third commandment's all about. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It has nothing to do with vocabulary. It has to do with ambassadorship. If you take his name, you better be prepared to represent him faithfully and accurately, competently. If my people, if we're called by my name, notice to whom this is addressed shall humble themselves. We know how to do that. Sometimes in a light mood, I'll say, well, the most humble person here, please raise their hand. And I'm being, and I'm being facetious, of course. Did I get a hand there? <laughs> no, we know how to do it. We don't do it enough, but we know how to do that. Pray. We know how to pray. And our prayer is a lot simpler than there is in Solomon's day, because one greater than the temple is among us. Matthew 12, 6. One greater than the temple, one that is greater than the temple is here. And we can access him any time. That's his full-time job right now. And pray, we're not praying. And seek my face. Oh, man. How much time, focus, priority, do each of us give to seeking his face? That sort of pinches, doesn't it? 
Okay, call my name. They'll humble themselves. Okay. And pray. We know how to do that. Seek my face. I think we can learn that if we focus on it. Here is the rub. And turn from their wicked ways. One of the shocks to me by, of this verse is that it is not addressed to the Congress, the Senate, the executive branch. It's not addressed to the pagan leadership that's in the corridors of power. It's not addressed to the Hollywood executives that promote fornication and every conceivable form of evil that they can imagine. No, no, no. It's not addressed to any of them. This is addressed to us. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, ah, and turn from their wicked ways. That's what's standing. I believe what is standing in the way of what God would prefer to do is us. I believe that he would prefer that America continue to be a beachhead for the gospel to a hurting world, as it has been in some phases of its past. What's in the way is us. I believe it. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then will I hear from heaven. Apparently not until then in a corporate sense. And will forgive their sin. And will heal their land. Now, is this a new, is this, say, this is Old Testament, is given to Solomon Israel? Yeah, maybe so. If my people, who are called by my name, God does have a people which called the church, or the body of Christ, call it what, call it what you will, that have accepted him as a Savior. In Titus 2.14, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself, what? A peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's us. We are God's people. There's one of many verses you can pick to justify it. If my people shall humble themselves. Ephesians 4, first couple of verses. The flesh is proud, but we are admonished to be humble. Ephesians uh, uh, 4 says, If therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you, excuse me, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. I think it's humbling themselves. I think it's, there are many you could pick, but that works. Long-suffering and meekness are the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, you know the list. Okay, and pray. Oh, okay. You can make all kinds of lists throughout the New Testament. We are admonished to pray. The Lord Jesus told his disciples to watch and pray continually. The epistles contain all kinds of commands to pray. We don't have to list those. And seek my face. Colossians 3, 1 to 2. It's also a New Testament admonition. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. So I think that's equivalent to New Testament admonition. And turn from their wicked ways. And this also applies to us. God has a great deal to say about repentance for believers. It says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He, Revelation 3.19, there's lots of others. Okay, if we do those four things, what about God's part? Well, he's promised that he would hear. That's exactly what he says in 1 John 3.22. Whatsoever we ask, we shall receive of him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. He also promised to forgive. The Christian's bar of soap, 1 John 1.9. 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's His faithfulness we count on, not ours. Praise God. And He also promised to heal the land. Robert Bork wrote a book called Slouching Towards Gomorrah, and his conclusion, after 400 pages, is that only a God-given revival can save America. His quote. Thomas Jefferson said back in 1781, I tremble for my country when I recall that God is just, that His justice cannot sleep forever. We are either going to have a God-given revival, or we're going to receive a long overdue judgment. Billy Graham warned us that decades ago. If God doesn't judge America, you'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what's in the scheme of things. Okay, for the next session, we're going to see this incredible experience of the visit of the Queen of Sheba. And that will be the last chapter of Solomon. I couldn't squeeze it in this one to finish Solomon, so we'll catch it as the first part of the, the, the four that we'll take next time. And in preparation, you can read uh, 1 Kings 10, the first uh, dozen verses if you want. Um, then the, uh, we're going to go through 2 Chronicles 9 through 12. It's going to continue the dynasty of David as we go forward. We're going to have the civil war and all things. Are, things are going to get kind of wild here going out. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer, a stretch break, a couple of cookies. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for the commitments you've given us. So, Father, as your people who are called by your name, we ask you, Father, you would help us to regard our humility and to pray more effectively and to more passionately seek your face. But also, Father, help us, Father, to turn from our wicked ways. Help us to shed the baggage that encumbers us. Help us, Father, to be more effective stewards of the opportunities ahead of us, Father. That you would indeed hear our prayer, that you would indeed forgive our sin, and you would indeed heal our land as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music